Let's go to John chapter 18 this morning. We'll be in 18, and most of the time we'll be in 18, but we will touch a little bit upon 19. We'll actually begin in verse 28 of chapter 18 this morning. And I'll be reading all the way into 19 and verse uh, 16. We'll finish there. So if you're able, would you stand as I read the word of God this morning? (laughs) Lord, we ask that you would come upon us this morning with the power of your Holy Spirit to provide us understanding and clear insight into your word, that these would not simply be to our minds and our hearts the words of men, but they would be the inspired words of our Heavenly Father. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 18, we'll begin verse 28. They led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Pilate, therefore, went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate therefore said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death, that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Peter therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus, or Pilate, I'm sorry, Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me and what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, and then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are king of the Jews. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And arrayed him in a purple robe, and they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to him, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. 
When Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was the more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For that reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They therefore cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then delivered him to them to be crucified. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. is so much is going on here we certainly won't be able to cover everything but we're going to cover the main theme which I think is important for us today what does kingship mean what does kingship mean now most countries that have a king in our modern world also have a a parliamentary government that actually is the authority uh, to rule in that country Uh, It's kind of the civil government, and the kings are often seen as uh, uh, figureheads or uh, handshakers and baby kissers and, and, uh, you know, boat christeners and things like that. Uh, Now, we have a lack of understanding of kingship in this country because we've never had a king. Now, there was a time that I believe they wanted to make um, George Washington some sort of king or president for life and he said no 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 we're going to limit that we're not, we moved away from that uh, in England and we didn't want to have any parts of that so our government will be set up in a different fashion our founding fathers were very clear that they did not want to have power s- centralized in the hands of one person or as we have three branches of government they didn't want to have power centralized in one branch of the government now I know this is civics 101 but but I'm going somewhere with this, so hang on with me, okay? We have the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. And the executive branch is not to make court cases, and the judicial branch is to not legislate laws, and the legislative branch is to not run the State Department. So each one has its own area, and each is held in a check and a balance as power is concerned, so that it doesn't swing to one side or the other. Um, now, given our sinful nature, I, I can't. I, I sat in my office this week and I thought, given our sinful nature, who would I trust to be king? I mean, besides me, okay? Because uh, uh, no, no. I, I thought I, I wouldn't even put. I wouldn't even give that authority to, to somebody like Billy Graham or somebody like that that we all hold character-wise in high esteem. I, I mean, let alone any politician that I know of or heard of or ever read about. Because of our sinful nature. Because you know what happens when you have power. You tend to use it. Even the most humble person who has been touched by sin tends to take power that is given to them and use it for their own means, eventually, or their own desires. Now, So what does all this mean? What does all this mean about kingship? It means 
that whether or not the world understands it, whether or not it accepts it, whether or not it even cares about it, we all do have a king. We have an absolute ruler who functions with no constraints of his own, except his own constraints. He has unlimited power, he has unlimited authority, and the final say over everyone's life, over all aspects of everyone's life in this world. Civil governments rule at his pleasure. How long you live will be determined by him. He decides what you will look like, how tall you will be, the color of your eyes, the color of your hair, the shape of your nose. A million other details in your life are all determined by him. Yet he does it in total fairness, in total righteousness, and he does it in a way that is completely just and without bias. Now this king stood before Pilate and the Jewish leaders who should have known what he would look like and the mass of people around them, and they did not recognize him. They did not see him as their king. They neither recognized him as such nor wanted even to spare his life. Here's the king of everything. And they wanted to kill him. They even cried out and said, we have no king but Caesar. Now, Jesus is on trial here, on trial before the Roman authorities. You remember there were two trials. You had the religious authorities, and that trial was corrupt because part of it was held at night, and it was really determined where they were going to go with that and what they were going to do. And they had to take it to the Roman authorities eventually because they needed, in a sense, their permission to execute Jesus in the way that they wanted him executed. And we'll see that in just a moment. So here in this section, it, we have... We have uh, it's kind of, uh, we start one way and we end in reverse way. We start with the time before Pilate and the questions that Pilate asks him. And Pilate finally says, well, well, I'm going to send you off. I, I, I can't do anything with you. This crowd wants you. He sends him over. And then in verse 19, we have this first, th- or chapter 19, we have this uh, first three verses really that talk about his scourging and, and what that means. And it's really compressed. It's elaborated in other gospels as we'll see uh, closer to, to uh, Easter. And then it ends again in the same way that it starts as Jesus is before Pilate once again. So look at uh, verse 29 here for, for an instant. Pilate asks, he therefore went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And in, it, it's a classic statement. Well, if he weren't guilty, we wouldn't be here. Right? They don't actually answer the question. They just assume that Pilate understands that we've already determined he's guilty and we just want you to play along with what we're doing. We wouldn't be here if he wasn't guilty. But Pilate does not, uh, he doesn't play along with their, their game here. He doesn't, uh, he's not inclined just to jump in and take their word for it. He's going to do his homework. He is going to do his homework. Now, we understand that long before Jesus gets to Pilate, the Jews had determined what they were going to do with him. They determined to eliminate him. Chapter 7 of John, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 11, in a variety of places. And this is still their aim as it becomes clear as they bring him to Pilate and, and they ask him specifically to execute Jesus because the Jews did not have that authority to execute him in the way that they wanted him killed. That's very important. Now, the Jews could stone people. Uh, the Jews could strangle people. Uh, but they could not crucify people. That was reserved specifically uh, 
for the Roman authorities. That power um, came about right about 30 AD. The Romans began to consolidate the power to execute people in that way within Rome itself and gave, did not give that permission to anybody else to do that. It's fascinating if you look at the timeline, that power was given to everybody else underneath the Roman rule prior to that. But right at 30 AD, that power is consolidated only in the Roman authorities. Almost as if they said, well, Jesus is coming along and we're going to have to crucify him in this fashion. So we're going to consolidate the power under the Roman rule. This is the providence of God as it is worked out in this fashion. Okay, So they seem set on an execution. And we understand that it has to be crucifixion. Because anyone who is hangs on a tree is cursed from Deuteronomy chapter 21. So the Jews understood this very much. They wanted this man who, in their eyes, falsely claimed to be the son of God. They wanted him cursed and hung on a tree. We understand that this was, again, simply the work of our Heavenly Father in carrying out his perfect plan. So John has been telling us from the very beginning of the gospel that Jesus came into the world and the world knew him not. He came to his own and they did not recognize him. It was as if they had blinders on. He would tell them the things of truth and they simply would not believe it. And at this trial, their further hypocrisy is really, really exposed. So let's look at verse 28 here. They, that's the Jewish leaders and the mob, led Jesus therefore from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Okay, I hope you, you catch the irony there. Okay? You have the Jewish leaders who have the Messiah, their Savior, and they're bringing him to some place where they can guarantee, it's all the fixes already, and guarantee where he will be executed. But they don't want to go in there themselves because they might become defiled and not be able to eat the Passover because the praetorium was a Gentile area. They're killing the Messiah, but they're worried about not being defiled so they can eat the Passover. Okay, this great irony here, this great hypocrisy is shown here. Uh, Let me read a quote from J.C. Ryle. The conscience of unconverted men is a very curious part of their moral nature. While in some cases it becomes hardened and seared and dead until it fears nothing, feels nothing, in others it becomes morbidly scrupulous about the lesser matters of religion. It is no uncommon thing to find people excessively meticulous and about the observance of trifling forms and outward ceremonies while they are the slaves of degrading sins and detestable immoralities. Robbers and murderers in some countries are extremely strict about confession and absolution and prayers to the saints. Fasting and self-imposed austerities in Lent are often followed by excess of worldliness when Lent is over. He says it is a small step from Lent to the carnival. Okay. John Calvin said, These hypocrites, though they are so full of malice, ambition, fraud, cruelty, and avarice that they almost infect heaven and earth with their abominable smell, are only afraid of external pollution. Now, when I read these quotes, you know, I I do theology by cinema so often, I thought of The Godfather, okay? How many of you are Godfather fans, okay? The movie? Anybody? Okay. Well, there's the one place... Where uh, Michael, you know, he's, he's the godfather now, and he is at the baptism of his son. 
and the priest is asking him questions. And while he's at the baptism of his son, and he's being asked questions like, do you confess the Lord Jesus Christ? And he says, I confess. Do you denounce the work of Satan? He says, I denounce it. And he goes on and on about these, these questions about holiness and his faith. And at the same time, the five fathers are all being executed. Okay, Mo Green and, and Brazziani and whatever other Italian name you can think of, they're all being sh- killed. You know, in the movie, the, the elevator opens and they blast them and Mo's getting a massage and they kill him and all these types of things. So he is confessing these things of faith while at the same time he is ordering the death of these other things and they bear no resemblance to one another. Okay. No resemblance to one another. This is what's going on here. They're bringing the Son of God to be killed, but they don't want to defile themselves by entering a Gentile place. I mean, that, that's, we're all hypocrites, but this is really hypocritical, okay, really. Perhaps the most ironic thing is the fact that their very act of bringing the Messiah to be executed is the act that guarantees salvation for those who belong to Christ. Okay, their involvement in this great sin, and again, it is the plan of the Lord that these things should be worked out this way. Their involvement in this very great sin is the thing that helps guarantee salvation to the sinful. Guarantee salvation to the sinful. They plead even with the Roman authorities not to release Jesus, but release Barabbas. Now, in our, our passage here in verse 40, uh, it says, Therefore they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was not just a robber, but he was uh, what would be considered a terrorist. He was uh, seditious. He wanted to overthrow the Roman government and and, and the Roman authorities there. So he was marked for execution. It's not just if, if Barabbas was a pickpocket. He was a terrorist who had obviously done things so bad that he was marked for execution. Let's go back to verse 33 a little bit. Pilate, therefore, entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus. And I want to give you this in the Greek because it's just a question in the English. Are you the king of the Jews? Okay, in the Greek, the, the, the sense is far more incredulous. Okay, you? You're king of the Jews? This is the way Pilate, the, the words come across in the Greek. You? Your king of the Jews? Pilate cannot believe that this guy dressed in these peasant robes, this guy bound, this guy brought by this mob is their king. I mean, how do kings show up? Kings show up with horses and soldiers and pomp and circumstances. And Pilate is like, well, where's, where's all your kingly stuff? I mean, you're not a king, are you? He, he just can't believe that he is a king. This is ridicule. This is, this is so full of sarcasm. Maybe, maybe Pilate is thinking of, of the previous week when he entered, earlier in the week when he entered Jerusalem to the cries of Hosanna and the crowds and the throngs were out there laying their cloaks in the street and then you're going, and now you're the king? Be serious. Be serious. The answer he gets from Jesus, verse 34. Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you this about me? Okay? Jesus neither affirms or denies this. Now, now we have seen this so often in the Gospels, and so often in Jesus' interaction. 
People ask Jesus a question, or they come to him with with their own agenda, and Jesus sees right through the agenda and goes right to the heart. It's almost as if, you know, it goes like this and hits that spot of need. Remember the woman at the well? He really, not often did he address her questions and her agenda directly. He addressed the agenda that was really there, her need for forgiveness, her need to understand that the Messiah was right before her. And even though she rabbit-tracked, Jesus would go right back to the central issue. So Jesus is kind of doing the same thing here with Pilate, and he is, he is slowly opening the door for Pilate and giving him an opportunity to come to grips with who is right in front of him, with who is right in front of him. But Pilate doesn't see, look at the... Uh, verse 35, Pilate doesn't grasp this yet. Pilate says, well, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests deliver you up to me. What have you done? What have you done? See, he has not gone looking for Jesus, but rather Jesus has been handed over to him by his own nation. By his own nation. Pilate doesn't grasp what is going on here. But as he has done before, Jesus is, is attempting as I said, to open the door a little bit so Pilate has this this chance to see what is really going on here and who Jesus really is. The end of verse 35, what have you done? He asked Jesus this question, what have you done? Well, Jesus in verse 36, as I said, goes not to that question, but to the real issue at hand. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. That has nothing to do with the question that Pilate asked. What have you done? Jesus is saying, this is the real issue here. My kingdom is not of this world. Is not of this world. Now he speaks of his kingdom, and this word occurs only here and earlier in John chapter 3. In the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he talks about uh, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, these types of things. But this kingdom is not a kingdom that has a realm and a physical realm here right now. And Pilate would understand kingship in that fashion, pretty much as we do in our world. Okay, you rule over a nation. You are king of Denmark or king of Sweden. That's not the way it works here. Jesus is king and his kingdom is over all things over all things the kingdom of god means that god is king now jesus is using this to help them understand if at all possible that you know i don't claim to be king of the jews i am king of everything of everything he says my kingdom is not of this world his kingdom is otherworldly because he himself is not of this world And neither of his followers. Remember, where's our home? It's not here. We're just pilgrims. Paul elaborates on this in the book of Philippians. He said, we are on a journey. We are pilgrims passing through. Okay? We are here for a short time, and our home is someplace else, and we are on the way to there. So while we're here, we're able to live in this fashion as understanding that our king and our home is someplace else. So live so that you might glorify your king while you're here and to prepare for where you are going down the road. See, Jesus is, I mean, he's on a different level than Pilate is. Pilate's still thinking this world and Jesus is thinking the kingdom of heaven. He's thinking the kingdom of heaven. 
So often, as I said, they ask a question, and Jesus responds in the way that suits his agenda and his purposes in all these things. So Pilate says, so then you are a king, right? He says, your kingdom's not here, but you are a king. And he says, Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. Now, that's not a confession. That is simply a statement. You have said that I'm a king. That's your term. And you understand that your definition of kingship does not match my definition. And then he goes on, verse 37. He says, so you're a king. He says, correct, that I am a king. For I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, this is Pilate's chance. Remember what Jesus so often says around the parables. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. So there are those who understand the parable and those who go, I don't know what he's talking about. Okay, They don't have the ears. Their ears are not spiritually attuned to the, what, is, what Jesus is teaching them. So he says here, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. The truth being those who are within Christ. And Pilate, this is not some great philosophical debate that Pilate is having here. This is more sarcasm and ridicule. He says, well, what is truth? Okay, he's trying to pass Jesus off. He's, he's almost reached the, the limit he can take of Jesus. So he goes, what is truth? What is truth? Jesus is saying that I am truth. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Pilate was not seeing this. It was a dismissal. The subject of those who, uh, who are in the truth, hear my voice, Pilate, is dismissing that simply as irrelevance. Irrelevance. So in the end, the one who is here to judge Jesus has been judged by his own words, by the king. There's a God more in this passage. Let me give you this last thought here. Again by J.C. Ryle. Christianity is a religion which at first seems so feeble and helpless and powerless that it could not live. Its first founder was one who was poor in this world and ended his life by dying the death of a cursed man upon the cross. Its first adherents were a little company whose number probably did not exceed a thousand when the Lord Jesus left this world. Its first preachers were a few fishermen and publicans who were most of them unlearned and ignorant men. Its first starting point was a despised corner of the earth called Judea, a petty tributary province of the vast empire of Rome. Its first doctrine was eminently calculated to call forth the enmity of the natural heart. Christ crucified was to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Its first movements brought down on its friends persecution from all quarters. Pharisees and Sadducees and Jews and Gentiles, ignorant idolaters and self-conceited philosophers all agreed in hating and opposing Christianity. It was a sect that everyone spoke against. These are no empty assertions, Ryle says. They are simply historic facts, which no one can deny. If ever there was a religion that was a little grain of seed at its beginning, that religion was the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the progress of the gospel is great and steady and continuous. And as 
Jesus said at the gates of Caesarea Philippi as he stood before this great pagan shrine to the the underworld and the god of Pan. He said the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Nothing can stop the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, No earthly ruler because he is king over all things. Whether people want to admit it or not, he is in control of all things. So the question today, is he your king? Okay, there's one thing to have Jesus Christ simply as your savior and to rest in that fact that he's my, you know, he has cleansed me of my sin. Is he your king? Do you bow down to him as your Lord? Do you want to live your life in submission to what he says? Or do you want to hold on to that power yourself and say, well, I'm going to live how I want to. That's not what he demands from us. He demands that we understand that he alone has the authority in our life, that he alone is our king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this little exchange before Pilate, the questions that Pilate asks, but the answers that Jesus gives, his kingdom is not of this world, neither are those who belong to him. Yes, Lord, we are here. We get up every morning. We have to face the issues that we face, the trials, the temptations, the joys. This is real life, but we understand this is a temporary life. You have placed us here that we might live this real life to your glory, that we might live this real life that you have placed us in with our work and our families and our friends, with all the things that you bring into our life, that we might live it out in obedience to you. However imperfectly we do, Lord, help us to understand that as king over all things, you use us in this fashion. You use us in this capacity. You use our obedience and even sometimes our disobedience to demonstrate your grace and your mercy. Lord, there are those around us who who need to understand these things. Sometimes they are our family members. Sometimes they are our friends. I mean, be us. We need to understand that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord. We cannot divorce the two. He is the one who has given his life just as you had ordered and planned, just as the desire of the Jewish leaders and and the mob, they thought they were doing their bidding, but in reality... They were carrying out the perfect plan that you had set in motion from all time. That your son would give his life. That our sins might be cleansed. For it was the only way that you had determined that this would happen. And as we know, Lord, he did not simply give his life. But he rose from that grave and became the first fruits of those who came out of the grave. And because Jesus Christ is risen, so will those who belong to him. Fix these things in our hearts, Lord, that we might not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I invite as we sing some elders to come down that we might be ready to serve. And we'll sing together number 621, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus.